Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Happy New Year, and thank you for looking especially bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, all of you. So in the final two sermons of the Year of Our Lord, 2022, we read the story of Jesus' birth from the Gospel of Luke. So now, between today and Easter, we're going to stay in the Gospel of Luke, studying Jesus' parables, with special attention paid to the parables that only appear in this particular gospel. That will include some of Jesus' most famous and memorable teachings. Stories like the Good Samaritan, the Lost Sheep, and the Prodigal Son, just to name a few. But as we'll learn, Jesus' parables are more than just pithy and moving stories with neat and tidy moral lessons and practical wisdom. To understand Jesus' parables on a deeper level, we must look closer. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Uh, thank you for the new year that we have made it through another calendar. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as we look ahead to the new year. Some of us see 2023 as full of promise and full of potential. And others of us are just trying to get through the day and are concerned about the stresses and the challenges that lie ahead. And likewise, some of us look back and are grateful that 2022 has come to an end. Uh, Some of us look back and think it was a great year. Uh, But Lord, wherever we are, as we look back and as we look forward this morning, uh, I pray that you would remind us that you are the same. Uh, As the calendar changes, as the weather changes, as priorities and goals and resolutions and commitments change, remind us that you are the same. You were always good. You were always sovereign. Uh, You are our Lord. You are our Father. And we always have reason to worship you, come what may. So, Lord, I pray that we would worship you this morning with what we say and what we do, with what we think and with how we feel. Uh, I pray it would all be honoring to you. And be with us as we attend to your word this morning. Uh, Help us be focused. Help us have ears to hear. Uh, Help us have hearts and minds that are open to what you have to say say to us this morning. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first things first, let's talk about parables. What exactly is a parable? One modern definition is that a parable is a short narrative with two levels of meaning. Now, that's helpful, but Jesus's parables can't be summed up so simply. Some of his parables take the form of a story, while others sound more like proverbs, riddles, comparisons or contrasts. This method of teaching that we call parables can't be so easily hemmed in, especially from the mouth of Jesus. Now, that said, one good example of a parable from someone besides Jesus comes from the prophet Nathan in the Old Testament, 
who we talked about several Sundays ago. Nathan uses a story about a rich man stealing a poor man's beloved lamb to help King David recognize his own sin in stealing another man's wife. Nathan's parable challenges David to look closer and understand something beyond the story's face value. That's much of what a parable intends to do. But along those same lines, our next question, what exactly do parables do? Our initial assumption might be that parables serve to make difficult teaching more clear. They're a way of making complex truths more accessible. But that's not quite so simple either. In some ways, parables serve a dual purpose. They can simultaneously reveal the truth and conceal the truth. After all, if a parable's only job was to make a lesson more clear, then why would Jesus come up with these elaborate stories rather than just come right out and say it? As a result, some might hear a parable and have their heart softened. Others might hear the exact same parable and leave even further hardened than they were before. Some might hear a parable and find deliverance. Others might hear it and seal themselves for judgment. Some can hear a parable and gain common folk wisdom. Others hear it and discern eternal truths. These parables serve a dual purpose. Revealing and concealing. Jesus says as much in Mark chapter 4 verse 12, where he quotes Isaiah chapter 6 verses 6 through 9. That passage seems to indicate that when some people get a parable and others don't, that's not a bug. That's not a problem that the teacher needs to correct. That's a feature. That's what parables are meant to do. So then what do parables require of their hearers? If we want to be the kind of people who get it and not the kind of people who don't, what has to happen? Well, Jesus tells us multiple times in the Gospels, Luke chapter 8, verse 8, parables require ears to hear, ears to hear. We must look closer. Parables demand deep reflection if we're going to learn the lesson that Jesus is teaching. In the ancient world, a parable was sometimes described as a hard saying. Some might even argue that we need divine help to grasp the meaning of Jesus' words. So because of that, a good practice when reading these hard sayings or really any other part of scripture for that matter, is to pray that God would help us understand the words in front of us. So with all that groundwork laid, let's now turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. We'll read the story that Jesus finds himself in, and then we'll turn to the parable that comes out of it. So Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. 
And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. In the broader context of Luke's gospel, the events we read about in chapter 7 come after some tension has already been forming between Jesus and the Pharisees. At this point, Jesus is the up-and-coming spiritual teacher, the amazing miracle worker, the brilliant interpreter of scripture who claims a level of divine authority for himself that makes the religious leaders and the Pharisees quite uncomfortable, to put it lightly. The Pharisees, meanwhile, were a party of Jews who advocated for a much more devoted observance of God's law than many of their contemporaries. In a way, the Pharisees were reformers. They were challenging God's people to a stronger commitment to purity, faithfulness, and obedience. Now, as the Gospels tell us, some Pharisees really were bad actors. But others likely had good intentions. And contrary to many of our stereotypes, the Pharisees did not have a reputation for being conniving villains. In fact, they were well-respected by most Jews of their time. But the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees had come through events like Luke chapter 5, where Jesus takes the prerogative to forgive sins. They come from events like Luke chapter 6, where Jesus doesn't observe the Sabbath in the same way the Pharisees expect. It comes from earlier in Luke chapter 7, where the Pharisees question the kind of company that Jesus keeps. However, at this point in the story, this early in the gospel, the tension was not yet red hot. So much so that Simon, the Pharisee, invites Jesus to a meal. In that day and age, meals were a significant form of generosity and hospitality. And to his credit, Jesus goes. He accepts the invitation. He's an equal opportunity teacher. And this is a good chance for these two men to hash some things out. But then the meal goes south. And it goes south when that third person appears. She's described as a woman of the city. That likely means she was a prostitute, whether by choice or necessity. And apparently this woman was successful and experienced enough in her line of work to have developed a reputation. 
For Simon, a Pharisee deeply concerned about spiritual and moral purity, a woman like that is an unwelcome guest at his table. But to make matters worse, this woman seems to be attempting to seduce Jesus. Her actions would have been seen as so sensual that they were inappropriate for public view. You have to assume that Jesus wasn't the first man to have his feet washed by this woman. But her actions were also abnormal. Because if you look closer, this is not a standard attempt by a prostitute to gain a new client. The ointment that she used was worth close to a year's wages. And as she serves Jesus, she doesn't have hungry eyes. She has tearful eyes. Of course, Simon has already jumped to conclusions about this woman's intentions. And he's jumped to conclusions about Jesus as well. He's obviously not a prophet or else he would have known who this woman was. And he's obviously not holy or else he would have stopped her. But Jesus then speaks to Simon and he teaches them through the parable. Verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus tells the story of two debtors. One owes a large amount, about two years wages, and one owes a small amount, about two and a half months wages. Both debtors are forgiven, but one loves the lender, or more appropriately, the giver, more. One is more grateful, and any guesses about which one? Now, to his credit, Simon gets it right. And if you were there, you probably would have gotten it right, too. The one who owed the greater debt, the one who was forgiven more, is more appreciative of the lender, of the giver, than the one who owed less. 
Simple story. Practical lesson, right? One author paraphrases this parable and puts it this way. Imagine you are walking along the beach with a friend and you cut your toe on a seashell. Your friend happens to have a band-aid for you. How do you respond? You're grateful. You say thanks. But love for your friend does not stir on any deep levels. But now imagine that you and your friend are on the beach and a tsunami sweeps you out to sea. Just before you drown, your friend pulls you to shore and revives you. He almost dies in the process. Now how would you respond? Gratitude and affection would immediately swell in your heart. Your love for your friend would overflow in thanks, praise, and delight. We can recognize the truth of this parable, even just at face value. But now let's apply the parable to the situation of Luke 7. Who are the two debtors? Well, Simon the Pharisee is the debtor who owed little. The nameless woman of the city is the debtor who owed much. Now, it's interesting that Jesus seems to acknowledge at some level that one person's sins can be greater than the others. However, it is also extremely important. It is crucially important for us to remember verse 42. Neither could pay. Neither could pay. And whether you owe a small amount or a large amount, if you can't pay it, you're in debt. But in Luke 7, one debtor leaves forgiven, while the other at least as far as we can tell, doesn't. How do we know that? We know that because of how they've treated Jesus. The woman's love and gratitude for Jesus was extravagant. Meanwhile, Simon the Pharisee didn't even offer Jesus a proper welcome. So then, what's the final outcome of the story? Well, the woman leaves at peace. And in a twist, the sketchy prostitute, whose sins were many compared to Simon, the supposedly upright Pharisee, she's the one who leaves debt free. And as for Simon, Luke doesn't come out and tell us how he responds to the parable, but it's hard to be overly optimistic. Simon now has to wrestle with how he will respond to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only man who can forgive sins with God's authority. And maybe Luke leaves the story open-ended to encourage us to do our own wrestling. The way Simon has to. You see, it's just as important to consider the final outcome For those who hear this parable and all of Jesus's other parables, these parables are written down for us, too. Now, we might leave this parable having learned something about 
Jesus' divine power and authority. Resting in a human being who is so much like us. Or we might leave chewing on the idea that while a debtor is a debtor is a debtor, not all debts are exactly the same. Or we might leave thinking about the irony of who gets the parable, the sinful, impure woman, and who apparently doesn't get it, the educated, well-respected, righteous Pharisee. Now, those can all be interesting and worthwhile takeaways. And remember, a huge point of parables is to make us think. But I suggest that we look closer at one primary takeaway this morning. And it's this. How do we respond to Jesus's forgiveness of sins? How do we respond to Jesus's forgiveness of sins? First, how does our sins being forgiven affect our relationship with God? I think we learned that lesson from the sinful woman of the story. Because our sins are forgiven, we can approach God in humility, worship, and love. That woman's thankfulness to Jesus was so great That she was unfazed by the humiliation of washing someone's feet. She didn't care about the breach of decorum that she committed by interrupting that meal. Or the assumptions that those watching might have based on her questionable past. She didn't care about the value of the ointment she was using. Because it paled in comparison to the value of the one she anointed. This woman approached Jesus with humility, worship, and love. And so can you. Because our sins are forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer defined by them. They don't have to rule over us the way they once did. And we too can approach the God of the universe with gratitude. But second, how does our sins being forgiven affect our relationship with others? Well, we don't view those carrying heavy burdens of sin. Those who owe great debts. We don't view them as foreigners, intruders, or nuisances. We remember that we once bore similar burdens. We once owed similar debts. And that in the same way that we found forgiveness at Jesus' feet, so can they. We don't pretend that the sins of others aren't there. And aren't a real problem that needs to be dealt with. However, we also don't pretend that we haven't been in the exact same boat. So rather than looking down our noses at sinners around us. May we lead them by the hand to the one who saved us. Because as Martin Luther said in his final recorded words from his deathbed, we are all beggars. Or in the context of this parable, we are all debtors. So, fellow believers, this parable challenges us to not forget 
our forgiveness. There's a well-established pattern in American politics that the longer a president is out of office, his approval rating tends to go up. Though personally, I suspect some recent occupants may put that pattern to the test. We think that someone is the absolute worst when they're in office. But then some time passes. They build a library and do some charitable work. We look back and usually come around to the idea that maybe that president wasn't so bad after all. With time, we tend to become more forgiving. We become more willing to overlook blunders, give a pass on missteps, and ignore shortcomings. Well, in some ways, I fear that the longer we Christians believe, our self-approval rating can go up. When we first come to faith in Jesus, we recognize ourselves as the worst of sinners in the Apostle Paul's words. But then over time, we might be tempted to forget just how sinful, just how lost we once were. And apart from God's grace, how lost and how sinful we would still be. We might be tempted to forget just how much we've been forgiven. And that can lead us to arrogance. It can lead us to a sense of entitlement. And it can lead us, of course, to judgmentalism toward those around us. Especially when we play the game of comparing our sins to theirs. So may we not forget the debt that we once owed. May we not forget the price that was paid on our behalf on the cross. And may we not grow love cold in our love for God or be cruel to the sinners around us who need the same grace that we have been given. And if you're not a Christian, I would challenge you not to underestimate God's grace. No debt is too massive to be forgiven through Jesus. William Tyndale once wrote, Therefore, no poor sinner should despair in his sins, like Cain, Saul, Judas, no matter how great his sins might be. He should not be fearful like Cain and say, My sins are greater than you can forgive. Rather, he should speak with St. Augustine and say, Cain, you lie. For God's mercy is greater than all human need and misery. Where sin has become powerful, their grace is even more powerful. So whatever your debt looks like, whatever sins you're guilty of, Jesus can forgive you. Approach him in humility, worship, love, and faith. Come to him with tears of repentance and go in peace. As Martin Luther said, we are all beggars. We are all debtors. Our debts might not all look exactly the same. Some of us may appear to have things together pretty well. We may look more like Simon the Pharisee than we do the woman of the city. But do not be mistaken. We are all debtors in one way or another. 
And on our own, none of us can make the payment. Our debt can only be paid. Our forgiveness can only be granted by Jesus Christ. So may we all approach him with deep humility, extravagant worship, and heartfelt, spirit-inspired love. With the confidence and the faith that we can be, we have been, and we will be forgiven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. And thank you for your word. Thank you that every single one of us walks in here with debts, with baggage, with skeletons in the closet, with sins that once defined us, that once sealed us for judgment, that once left us hopeless. But Lord, remind us that we don't have to stay that way, that we don't have to remain under judgment. We don't have to remain dominated by sin. We don't have to remain in a state of debt. In one sense, we are always in debt. We always owe you. We are always constantly under obligation to to thank you and love you and praise you. But in another sense, we're not in debt because we have been forgiven. And in another sense, we're not in any real obligation to worship you or thank you, but we have the privilege and the joy and the honor of worshiping you and thanking you and praising you. So Lord, if we're Christians already, keep us humble. Remind us of how much you have forgiven us. Help us have soft hearts toward the people around us who are wrestling with sins of their own and help us not be blind or ignorant of our own sins. And Lord, for those who are not believers, I pray that they would bring their debts, that they would bring their baggage to your feet with the confidence that you can forgive us, that you do forgive us by your body and blood on the cross. And if we have any doubts about that, our forgiveness from your body and blood are just as sure as your resurrection. So Lord, again, thank you for the mercy, the kindness, the grace, the generosity that you show to sinners like us. That we can approach you in confidence, we can approach you in peace, we can approach you in humble repentance, and we can leave knowing that we are saved. Knowing that by grace, through faith, we can leave your presence and ultimately remain in your presence eternally in a state of peace. You alone can forgive sins, Lord, and so remind us to bring them to your feet. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.